Though the high priest and the council at this juncture are flow through the book of Acts, Acts 7 in particular, though they're interested in hearing Stephen's response to the accusations that have been levied against him, Last Sunday, we mentioned that Stephen's response in no way seek to justify his actions or even defend himself against these falsehoods, which is a bit interesting in regards to a defense, not attempting to defend himself. But instead, Stephen uses the opportunity before him to speak truth in the lives of these religious leaders. And he'll do so by recounting their history, Jewish history, to illustrate five key lessons. Now, last Sunday we saw how in presenting the framework of Abraham's relationship with God, that Stephen was illustrating that faith, faith in Jesus, it had been God's plan all along. It was consistent with the life that God had called Abraham to live and thus that God had called them to live. Then, in presenting the patriarch's interactions with Joseph, we see Stephen illustrating that God actually ended up using their very rejection of Jesus to exalt him to the position of Savior. Joseph's brothers rejected him. They ridiculed him. They persecuted him. They sold him into slavery. They treated him with contempt. And yet it was in that process that God used their rejection of Joseph to lead him in this awesome providential path whereby he would be exalted in Egypt and act as their very savior. And though our sins crucified Christ, it was by these very sins that Jesus was exalted to be savior. And we see this in the example presented by Stephen. Now this morning, we're gonna look at the third lesson. You see, in presenting their rejection of Moses, Stephen will illustrate that their forefathers, that the Jews of old, that they actually trusted God and not Moses to deliver them. Some will say that Moses is an example of Christ or a type of Christ, but I think that's a little convoluted and, and we'll explain as we develop. We'll see that the Jews, they trusted God more than Moses, which was a big deal at this point because what was one of the things Stephen was accused of speaking against? He was accused of speaking against Moses, but he'll point back to the history and say, speaking against Moses, that's more consistent with the Jews of old than following Moses. We'll see how this develops. Now to set the stage, we should point out that in Acts chapter seven, verses six and seven, God had given Abraham an interesting prophecy. Look at it again. God spoke in this way, we're told, that his descendants, Abraham's descendants, would dwell in a foreign land and they would bring them into bondage and oppress them for 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, God said, I will judge. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. And so this is a prophecy that God had given Abraham. And Stephen now will explain how this prophecy was fulfilled. Verse 17 of chapter seven, we pick it up. But when the time of the promise, what promise? This promise that we just referenced, when it drew near, the promise God had swore to Abraham, that the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. And this man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so, they, so that they might not live. Now, Stephen is working his way through the history of Israel. He, he explains that because of a great famine in the land of Canaan, and through the obvious provisions that had been provided by Joseph, the family of Jacob 
They end up migrating from Cana to Egypt, settling in, according to Genesis 46, the land of Goshen. Now understand the development that takes place here occurred historically at a perfect time in Egyptian history. Traditionally, according to Genesis 46, verse 34, the Egyptian people despised shepherds, of which the family of Jacob were. And since the main occupation of Joseph and his family had been shepherds, the situation that we see of them actually being granted favor by Pharaoh, being allowed to settle in the land of Goshen, it would have never been possible if not for a political shift that had recently occurred within the Egyptian empire. You see, during the time in which Joseph found himself in Egypt, the Hyksos dynasty had risen to power. First century Jewish historian Josephus claims that the Hyksos were actually the shepherd kings. Now, there is some debate in regards to the translation of Hyksos. Recent scholars simply say that it means rulers of a foreign land. So whether they were shepherd kings or a foreign power that had came in to dominate Egypt, I'll let you study it and decide. It doesn't really matter. For either way, because the Hyksos were sympathetic to foreigners, whether they were foreigners themselves or sympathetic to shepherds, Jacob and his family were allowed to settle in the land of Egypt when traditionally the Egyptians would have refused such a courtesy. They didn't like shepherds. They had a distrust of nomadic people. They wouldn't have allowed, even in the favor of Joseph, they wouldn't have allowed Jacob and his family to move there if it weren't for the fact that the Hyksos had come to power. As God even foretold, this dynamic worked out initially in the favor of Israel or the family of Jacob. But though it initially benefited them, well, it wouldn't last forever. You see, approximately 320 years after settling in Egypt, the political spectrum would shift back away from the Hyksos to a more traditional ruling dynasty. Historically, we know that the king who did not know Joseph was not Hyksos, but was instead Amenhotep I, the second king of the 18th dynasty. Now, I bring this up because one of the great criticisms of this story centers around the simple reality that Egyptian records have no mention of Joseph. They have no mention of the Hebrew people spending 400 years in captivity. There's no mention in Egyptian history of Moses or the events surrounding the Exodus. And the criticism ends up being compounded by the reality that the Egyptians were meticulous in keeping records of their history. And yet, it's interesting that recent discoveries have shown that the Egyptians not only actively excluded any historical occurrences that might have looked negative, but they would expunge from the record things that they simply didn't like. And there are two interesting recent examples of this that play into maybe explaining why the Hebrews aren't mentioned in Hebrew history. First, recent discoveries have revealed that once the Hyksos, this foreign ruling power or this shepherd kings, once they had been removed, the Egyptians actively whitewashed history. They so hated and despised the Hyksos that we see even within the ruins of, of Egypt that they took chisels to try to remove any mention of this group of people. 
and their ruling dynasty from history. Now, a modern technology, we're able to go back and do, and do testing to see what was behind these great scrapings of the wall, and we have thus learned about the Hyksos. But the Egyptians didn't want you to know about them. They were removed, and that's interesting, why? Because if the Hyksos coincided with the Hebrew people living in the land, and the Egyptians tried to remove the Hyksos from history, then who else would subsequently be removed? any mention of Joseph or this 400 years in captivity. Secondly, recent discoveries have also revealed the great lengths by which the Egyptians went to remove Hatshepsut. I probably butchered the name, but that's my best guess. Hatshepsut, who was the fifth queen of the 18th dynasty from their official records, which is bizarre. Like they specifically targeted this one queen and tried to remove every mention of her from the Egyptian record. Now let me give you a quick little bit of history before we get back to our text to explain why this is relevant. Amenhotep I, who is Pharaoh where we're at in our narrative, because he lacked a male heir to the throne, he would hand select his brother-in-law, Thutmose I, to succeed him as Pharaoh. Following Thutmose I's death, his son, Thutmose II, became Pharaoh. But according to recorded Egyptian history, Thutmose II would unexplainably die at the age of 30, leaving the throne to his wife, Hatshepsut, until his son, the third, Thutmose III, could be old enough to serve as Pharaoh. And as soon as Thutmose III was old enough to rise to power in Egypt, he does something bizarre, something almost unexplainable. He immediately tries to invade Canaan, which had no strategic importance to Egypt. Now, if you place these events within the biblical narrative of Exodus, it would seem that Thutmose II died at the age of 30, unexplainably, why? He drowned in the Red Sea after reneging on the promises to let the children of Israel leave Egypt. Then, because Hatmaseph, his wife, who becomes queen until his son can come to power, because she's just suffered incredible loss, the death of her firstborn son, now the death of her husband, she knows that it's the God of Israel. She has no interest in pursuing the, uh, uh, the, the, the Hebrew people any further than the Red Sea. She retreats back. It's a humiliating defeat. And because of her uh, lack of determination to right this particular wrong, she's removed from history. Her son immediately seeks vengeance by doing what? Invading Canaan. For what purpose? Attacking the Hebrew people. Well, makes sense then if Hemenesep, if this queen, this fifth queen, if she rises to power, following the death of her husband before her son can come to power at the same time period that Moses is letting my people go, like leading them out of, out of Egypt through the wilderness, all this stuff. If they're trying to remove her from history, then they're also removing what events from history? Moses, the Exodus. So some explanation why we might not find the Hebrews mentioned in Egyptian history, because that is a criticism. I think there's explanations. Moving on, according to the book of Exodus. By the time Amenhotep I rose to power, Exodus chapter 1, there was a fear among the Egyptians that the Hebrew people now posed, after 320 some odd years, 
a growing threat to power. So the Hyksos dynasty falls, this new dynasty rises to power. Amenhotep I is looking at this group of people living in Goshen, and he's thinking, they're a problem. Why? Now, though they had started as 75 people, had risen to, well, close to a million. So you have a million foreign people living in your land. You just came to power. Things are shaky. What are you thinking? These people are a threat. There's as many of them as there are us. And so Amenhotep decides to enact new policies towards these foreigners. These things are detailed in Exodus 1 and 2. Now, Stephen simply tells us that this king dealt treacherously with the people. He removed their autonomy, and he placed the Hebrews in slave-like conditions. And yet, his plan backfired. According to Exodus chapter 1, verse 12, we're told, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiply and grew. So the Egyptians were in dread of the children of Israel. So with political pressure mounting, Amenhotep decides to go one step further. Instead of just placing these people in bondage, he now actively tries to limit their population growth. Exodus chapter 1, verse 22, we're told, So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the river, the Nile. Every daughter you shall save. So population control. Eliminate a whole generation, limit the population, the Egyptians can retain power. And it is with this backdrop that Stephen continues, verse 20. And at this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now to say that Moses was born in an inopportune time would have been an understatement. Because of this new death policy, Moses' life was in immediate danger right from the very first day. Stephen tells us that in addition to being well-pleasing, Moses was brought up in his father's house, but this only lasted for three months. I mean, imagine what these three months must have looked like for his father Amram, his mother Jacobed, his sister Miriam, as they try to conceal this newborn baby boy from the authorities. I mean, I have an infant son. Like, trying to keep that child quiet on command, this is not going to happen. Like, it's really shocking that it lasts for three months. Not to mention, the plan was kind of short-sighted. I mean, imagine for a moment if they had been successful. You want to talk about an awkward first day to kindergarten, right? Five-year-old Moses shows up, and there's no other males but all women. Like, how did he make it? Like, the plan's short-sighted. It's not going to work, although those are good odds for old Mo, you would have to imagine. One guy and a nation of females would work for him, but it's not going to happen. Like, it didn't work. Hebrews 11 verse 23 actually gives us further insight into the motivation behind this desperate attempt to conceal Moses from the authorities. We're told that by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's commands. This phrase 
they saw he was a beautiful child presents more than the idea that they recognized that their son had like this charm or, or that they even loved him. The phrase seems to indicate that there was a deeper spiritual understanding that God had great plans for their son, which is why they went to such great lengths to conceal Moses from the authorities. You know, in light of the prophecy that God had given Abraham, the people understood that God would ultimately deliver them from Egypt, that Egypt was not their resting place, that God had said you would be there for 400 years, you'd become a nation, God would deliver you. This was the promise to Abraham, and as we're Ticking closer to the 400-year mark, you can imagine the rumor mill circulating among the Egyptian camp. God's going to deliver us. They're looking for a deliverer. They're looking for the promise. They knew that Egypt was not their home, that God would lead them back to the land that had been promised to their forefathers. And it seems from the text, from the context, that Amram, his father, Jacobet, his mother, they believed with all their heart somehow that their son little Moses would play some type of instrumental role in the process of God delivering the people. We don't know how this happened. We're just told it was by faith. Maybe it was by prayer that God gave them a vision, a prophecy. Well, when it became clear that concealing Moses would be impossible, in an act of utter desperation, as you recall the story, Moses is placed into this little basket and he set afloat in the Nile. It's the ultimate Hail Mary of sorts. Miriam, his sister, would keep an eye on Moses from a distance to see what would become of the child. And it can only be attributed as being part of the providence of God that this little Hebrew boy ends up being discovered by whom? None other than Pharaoh's daughter. Once again, the conditions for what happens next were perfect. As mentioned, history indicates that Amenhotep Though he had a daughter, he had failed to produce a son, which means he didn't have an heir to the throne. This meant that as his adopted grandson, Moses would not only be spared death, escape a life of bondage, the rest of his people were experiencing, but Moses, if Pharaoh allowed his daughter to keep him, would become whom? The next Pharaoh of Egypt. Stephen tells us that because Moses ends up being brought up as her son and was thus learned in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians, that he grew to, to great power, great notoriety, great strength. I mean, imagine the amenities that Moses would be afforded as the adopted son of Pharaoh, especially in light of, of the plight of his own people. He'd have health care. He... He would have schools. He would have the best of the best. I mean, at 16, he didn't get the beater chariot. He got like the chariot rolling with 40s. Like, I mean, he had everything. He had power, he had wealth, he had fame and notoriety. I mean, he was the it guy, the chosen one, the next Pharaoh. You know, it's interesting on a side note that Moses was not actually his name. It's actually his Egyptian name. It's the, the Egyptian name given to him. We have no record at all anywhere in scripture of what this little boy's original name was. He's just known as Moses. And it should come as no surprise with all of the things afforded to him that he became mighty, according to Stephen, in words and deeds. It's interesting, Josephus 
tells us that Moses would become specifically skilled in the art of war. And he would rise the ranks in Egypt to becoming that of general, which is fitting if you're going to be the next pharaoh. According to Josephus, that Moses also achieved incredible fame when he demonstrated bravery and courage by leading the armies of Egypt into a decisive victory against an invading Ethiopian army, Moses. He had everything at his fingertips. He was on the fast track to political power. But Stephen tells us that something interesting happens. Verse 23, now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed, Stephen gives us the reason, that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting. And he tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you're brothers. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away and said to Moses, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Dun, dun, dun. That's written in the text, promise. Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian where he had two sons. Now, Stephen's transition here gives us an interesting detail. When Moses was 40 years old, 40 years, he spends as the next Pharaoh. At, at some point, it's getting closer and closer and closer, but something is stirring in his heart. It, it came into his heart to now visit his brethren, obviously in their bondage and in their despair. Now, in order to understand what, what would have moved his heart, how Moses would have even been cognitive of these things, we should point out another detail about his childhood. You see, in addition to growing up in the household of Pharaoh, as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, Exodus chapter 2, verses 7 and 9, tells us that during his developmental years, something interesting happens. So Pharaoh's daughter finds this little baby. It's like, he's so cute and cuddly. I want to keep him but I don't want to have to change diapers or anything like that. And so seeing this little Hebrew girl, Moses' sister standing by, she's like, do you need someone to watch the child for you? And she's like, that's excellent, awesome idea. So who ends up raising young Mo? His mother and father. And you can imagine that, that both of them Amram and Jacobed, after seeing how these events unfolded. So they, they were trying to conceal Moses for three months because they believed Moses would be, uh, would be a deliverer. And then seeing out of desperation how God worked events together to the point that now their son goes from death, crocodile bait in the Nile, to now being like the next Pharaoh, their faith is bolstered, you know? Like, any doubt is now removed that their son would be used by God. Clearly, why else would this happen? And you can sense that as, as Moses is growing in wisdom and knowledge of Egypt, that what is his mother and father doing? That they're also imparting to Moses his spiritual heritage. That they're communicating to him 
the promises that God had given Abraham and how those promises had been passed to Isaac and Jacob. And I'm sure they told the story of Joseph and how they ended up in this land, but that they wouldn't stay there. You see, Moses, his heart is stirred. Why? Because he sees himself as a deliverer. According to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 27, their spiritual influence had a profound impact. Once again, we're told that by faith, Moses, when he became of age, 40 years old, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater than riches that were in the treasures in Egypt. For he looked to the reward, and by faith Moses forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So we, we see, sense what's going on in Moses, why he goes to visit his people. This was not an accident. God had promised to deliver the Hebrew people out of Egypt. His parents believed Moses would play a role. The supernatural providence of God seemed to validate this calling, not to mention of all the Hebrew people that were fit to lead such an exodus. Moses was the cream of the crop, wouldn't he? Not only was he the only Hebrew male of this generation to survive the onslaught, but he had been placed into the greatest schools, the greatest learning. Like if you needed someone to lead a ragtag group of a million or so slaves out of Egypt into a land occupied by other people, a guy with Moses' resume of his experience, even to the fact that he was skilled in the art of war, Moses was the right guy for the task. He was the most qualified. But don't overlook the magnitude of his decision, of what it would cost Moses. He was destined to be the most powerful man in Egypt. Egypt, with all of her treasure, was right there for his taking. And yet, Moses, we're told, what did he do? Even with all of this there, he forsook Egypt, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than, than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Moses made a decision, I would rather be accounted a child of God and suffer affliction than to be a son of Pharaoh and to have all of this worldly gold, but to die lacking God. Moses, it would seem he went there with more than just the intention of visiting his people. For we're told that when he sees one suffering wrong, one of his brethren, so this Egyptian beaten down on this Hebrew, Moses does what? He springs into action. And why does he spring into action? Why does he strike down this Egyptian? Moses believed, according to Stephen, that God would deliver the Hebrew people. How? By his hand. That's significant. He sets his plan in motion. He defends him who was oppressed, strikes down the Egyptian. He believes that now this act would validate his call amongst the people, that they would rally around him, that a revolution would ensue. Well, it didn't quite work out like Moses had thought. Not only do they not rally around him, but they reject him. And in their rejection, they kind of leave Moses in quite a precarious situation because word was getting around that Moses had killed another Egyptian. 
which was a capital crime. It was punishable by death. Exodus tells us that Pharaoh was enraged, was seeking after Moses. And so Moses fled, left Egypt. He became a dweller in the land of Midian. And according to Exodus chapter 2 and the first verse of chapter 3, Moses would end up marrying a Midian priestess named Zipporah. He would become a shepherd, tending the flocks of his father-in-law. I love his name, Jethro. They were southern folk. He would have two sons. He would live in obscurity for 40 years. Duplicates his life in the wilderness. This was not the future that Moses' parents had envisioned for their son, nor had this been the future that Moses had envisioned for himself. Now, as a student of Scripture, we understand that while Moses had indeed been chosen to play an important role in the process of leading God's people out of the land. His parents were right. Moses was even right. We understand that in striking down the Egyptian and killing the Egyptian, Moses made a tragic mistake. Consider for a moment what that mistake was. Before he acted, no doubt Moses looked right. And Moses looked left. But what did Moses fail to do? He failed to look up. He failed to seek the Lord. He stepped out in his own strength, in his own ability. God was not leading Moses to deliver the people in this moment. Moses stepped out wanting to deliver the people in this moment. And in order for Moses to recognize, to come to grips with the magnitude, the reality of what God's call really was, he would have to spend 40 years in the wilderness. Moses would have to spend time recognizing his mistakes, realizing his inadequacies. Because Moses attempted to deliver the people in his own ability, God allowed him to fail miserably and sent him into the wilderness to break him of his self-reliance. Imagine what that had to have felt like for Moses. Everything was set up for you. Everything was laid out. Everything was there. You felt God's calling on your life. You felt the stirring of the Spirit. You were ready. You were looking for the opportunity. You had been saved from destruction. You had been equipped for the moment. You jumped out prematurely. You acted impulsively. You committed murder. And God sends you away. And the people remain in bondage. And you can imagine as Moses works his way around the back alleys of Midian, he felt like a failure. That by his poor choices, he had irrevocably destroyed anything that God could do in his life. That he had ruined everything that God was done. And then the thought would cross his mind of the people still in bondage, thinking that he had let his own brothers down. The guilt the disappointment, the depression. Moses felt as though that God was through with him. But we're told in verse 30 that when 40 years had passed, 40 years, he spends 40 years roaming the deserts. He's now 80 years old. That what happens? An angel of the Lord, we know this to be God from Exodus 3, 
appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. And when Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and he drew near to observe. And the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God he had heard so much about, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groanings, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. It's an interesting exchange, especially with the backstory established for old Mo. He's bummed out, he's depressed, he's figuring that his sin has ruined any hope of being used by God, yet alone restored. And he catches this unusual sight, a bush that's burning, but not burning, but it's burning. But it's not so much burning, but wait a second, it's burning. It's a trippy thing. And he gets closer and closer and closer to check out this bush that's burning, but not burning, but it's burning, but we're not sure if it's burning, but it seems to be burning. And not only is this bush doing that, we won't repeat it again, but to his surprise, it's a bush that also talks. Trippy, right? I mean, he's out in the wilderness. We're told, though it's not recorded, that God said, Moses, Moses, which I found real funny. I mean, he has to use Moses twice, right, to get his attention, which is bizarre, because, I mean, did he think there was another Moses in the wilderness? Like, oh, you mean me? This Moses, right? And then God tells him to take his sandals off his feet, the place he stands is holy ground. Now, in that culture, the feet were the most disgusting part of the body. Even today in Eastern culture, when you sit down, your feet have to face away from the meal. There are stories that if your, face, your feet face the meal, that they'd have to throw away the whole meal and start over, that, that you're defiling the food that's in front of you. The, the most disgusting, you think you have a foot phobia. Easterners, most definitely. Feet, gross. And yet God tells him to do what? To take off his sandals for what purpose? Well, the ground he's standing is holy. Is holy. Now, if it was about like, hey, like my mom would always say, you know, when you go to someone's house, you need to show respect by doing what? Taking off your shoes before you go in. If it was about respect, then God would be like, Moses, the ground you're on is holy. Keep them jokers on your feet because your feet are gross, brother. And yet, there's an object lesson here, right? Important for Moses. Because God tells him, hey, I have a plan for you. I want to work in you. I want to work through you. I'm not done with you, Moses. But before we can move forward, the dirtiest part of you needs to come into contact with my holiness. Like, Moses, you got to repent. You got to come to terms with your inadequacies and your insufficiencies, you got to allow me to heal you, to restore you. Now, these religious leaders, they knew the story. They even knew how the events would proceed forward, which is why Stephen bypasses a detailed account of the Exodus. And he gets right to his point, verse 35. 
He tells them, this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel. You also want to underline that. Who appeared to him in the bush. And he brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Now understand, Moses is not being presented by Stephen as a type of Christ. I heard commentator after commentator after commentator point out that Moses was sent to the people to deliver them. And he was rejected the first time. And it was on the second time he was sent that the people finally opened their eyes and accepted their deliverer. But the problem is, is that this doesn't make sense in the context of a Jewish history or even the flow of what Stephen is saying or their understanding of scripture at this juncture. Like Jesus hasn't come a second time to the people. You see, instead of presenting Moses as a type of Christ, Stephen is illustrating instead the stupidity of placing so much faith in Moses as a deliverer. Think about it this way. When Moses killed the Egyptian, were the Jews right or wrong by refusing to follow Moses? <laughs> I'd say they were actually totally justified. That they, that, they, that they demonstrated great spiritual intuition. Because Moses, because it was obvious, he was acting in the, in the flesh, that he was stepping out under his own strength, under his own power, without the involvement or leading of God. God would never lead Moses to kill the Egyptian in such a way. They understood that Moses would have not only been powerless to really deliver them, which is why they didn't rally around him, but one can only imagine the fallout being devastating if God wasn't behind Moses in this moment. I would even go so far as to say that God would have allowed Moses to fail, even if the people had rallied, because this is not how God was going to work. Moses, I told you to underline it. It's significant. What was his main mistake the first time? We're told, look back, Moses thought what? God would deliver them how? by his hand. <laughs> but it would seem the people knew better. They rightly understood that the job of delivering Israel out of bondage, this job was not Moses. This job was reserved for God and he alone, that God would deliver by his own hand. Look back at what God would later tell Moses at the burning bush, verse 34. God says, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning. And what? I have come down to deliver them. Now come, I will send you to Egypt. You see, the only reason the Jewish people rally around Moses the second time was because it had become clear to all involved that Moses would be an instrument that God would use to deliver them it was also a lesson Moses had come to understand as well. I'll read it for you. Exodus chapter four, verses 27 through chapter five, verse one. We're told that the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. That's what all brothers do. So Moses told Aaron, 
all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he commanded him. So he recounts the whole story. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. And he did signs in the sight of the people. So what? The people believed. When what? They heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel, that the Lord had looked on their affliction. So they bowed their heads and they worshiped. And afterwards, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh what? Thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go. First time we're told Moses does what? He looks out to his brethren to deliver them how? By his hand. The second time, Moses comes under the strength of the Lord with a message that God wanted his people to be delivered by his own hand. Look again at what Stephen says in verses 35 and 36. This Moses, I'm going to emphasize a few words here as we work through this to help you wrap your brain around what Stephen's really saying. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him. Then we're told that he brought them out after he had shown them, or literally performed, that he's not there, wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, in the Red Sea, in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, this phrase, he brought them out, it can be misleading. For one, in your initial reading, might have concluded that Stephen's, that Stephen's implying that Moses was responsible for bringing them out. And yet the Greek word he is hotos, which is better translated this. And in Matthew, God would speak down at the baptism of Jesus and says, this hotos is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It's an example of this word being used as this. You see, Stephen's doing something interesting. He's telling these religious leaders, he's reminding them that the one who brought them out was the same one who performed signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, the Red Sea and the wilderness. But he is not Moses. Where's the emphasis? It's not back to Moses, but instead the whom? The angel, the hand of the angel of the Lord. It was the hand of the angel of the Lord, according to what Stephen's saying, is the one who brought them out. This brought them out, this angel, and is the one who also performed these signs and wonders. Moses didn't perform signs. Who performed the signs? God did over and over and over. All Moses is is a mouthpiece and an instrument. He does nothing. You see, the religious leaders, they had placed all of their faith in whom? In Moses. They believed that Moses could deliver them from sin. But the reality of history, what Stephen points out, is that Moses, you know all Moses was? A failed deliverer. That's all he was. Moses came to deliver the people, and what happened? They rejected him, and he failed. Because he couldn't do it. He comes a second time, it's not Moses delivering the people. Rather, it's God. 
You see, Stephen is wanting these religious leaders, and it's important in the context of the flow of the sermon, right? Abraham demonstrates this life of faith. It's consistent with what Jesus was teaching. In addition to that, you rejected Jesus, but in your rejection, it's okay, because God exalted him to a position of savior. But here's the reality. You're placing all of your faith in Moses. He's a failed deliverer. But where Moses failed, if you look back at history, God proved able. Moses. He's an object lesson not of Christ, but of a failed Christ, a failed Savior. Understand, no man can save you from your sin. That includes you. But it's only Jesus. It's by his stripes that we are healed. Jesus is able where Moses proved lacking. So Father, with that word,